Today, in a one-off little series, morning and evening, we're going to be thinking about having a meal with Jesus, meals with Jesus. And this morning, we're going to look together at Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. And this evening, we will go right to the end of Luke's Gospel, uh, to Luke chapter 24. But this morning, Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32. In her book, Hungry City, How Food Shapes Our Lives, author Carolyn Steele says this, Few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. And Jesus would agree. Food really matters. From the dramas that unfold around all our kitchen tables as families gather and share stories of the day's news or recall the happenings of what's gone on and the excitement of an engagement or a wedding or a birth or even a new job and an interview that's been successful. Right the way through to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper where the family of God gather around together, food connects, it's around the table that we connect with one another. Meals really do matter. Food writer and journalist and broadcaster Nigel Slater describes very movingly in his autobiography how as a boy he used to compare jokingly with his mum that her kisses were like marshmallows to him. But sadly at the age of nine, Nigel's mother died, leaving him utterly distraught. So what his father did the day after the funeral was started leaving marshmallows by his bedside so that every night he would be reminded of his mother's love for him. These little mini meals, these marshmallows reminded him of that family love. You see, food is so much more than simply fuel for our bodies. Meals really matter. And Jesus would agree. In fact, on what would have been a communion Sunday in Le Comfort and Union Road, I want us to spend some time sharing in two meals together today from Luke's Gospel. But my challenge was in selecting just two meals from Luke's Gospel. Because we find Jesus eating or at a meal in Luke chapters 9, 10, 11, 14, 19, 22 and 24. And that is before we could even have used some of Jesus' parables that talk about food. In his book, Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel, Robert Karras writes, In Luke's Gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Most of the popular TV series or soap operas seem to have pubs or cafes or restaurants or coffee shops as the center for the dramatic storylines when a secret is revealed or or something shocks the community. It always seems to filter out the news from wherever people have been sitting down, sharing time together. Food and meals, sharing a table is also the setting for so much of the enacted drama that is the life of Jesus here on earth. Are you hungry yet? Well, let's prepare for the meal laid before us in Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 32, as first of all, we are made aware of an unexpected invitation. An unexpected invitation. Luke chapter 5, verses 27 to 28. We read there of Levi, a familiar figure around Capernaum. 
where there was a large population surrounding the Sea of Galilee, a very busy fishing port, and Levi had a very lucrative tax booth right in the center of the town. The problem was that Levi was a Jew and he collected taxes on behalf of the Romans, who were the occupying forces of Israel. Levi had bought a franchise in which he collected the taxes on behalf of the Roman authorities and anything extra that he charged, he was allowed to pocket as profit. Whoever had come up with this regional revenue of tax system in Rome was a genius because it left the locals to do all the dirty work. Tax collectors would have been notorious for their financial ambition whilst also being ethically totally unprincipled. So Levi traded financial security for social and personal reputation. He was estranged from his fellow countrymen because of the job that he did. I mean, even his name suggests the faithful family that he came from. His name is Levi, from the tribe of Levites, who were the religious professionals, the the ones who served in the temple, those who were supposedly closest to God, the priests who served others. Oh, how his ancestors would have been turning in their graves to think that one of their own was working for one of their enemies. You know, it would have been like Colonel Sanders, you know, that white-haired, bearded, glass man, you know, leaving the Kentucky Fried Chicken recipe and handing it over to his son only for his son to sell it off to a firm like McDonald's or a trusted employee ripping off their boss and handing over important data and customer preferences to a leading rival. Levi had sold himself to the enemy. He had sold himself to sin. Staff writer for Desiring God Ministries, John Bloom, describes the scene like this very helpfully. Levi had kept a distance from the synagogue and spiritual elite and made his friends with the sinners. He identified with the rebels. But then came the strangest and best day of his life. Levi had heard about this rabbi Jesus. Everyone seemed to be talking about him. There were reports of astounding miracles, puzzling over the parables that he told. And Jesus had then come to their time. Levi had hoped to hear him preach, but, you know, he was swamped with work. The tax collectors dare not disappoint their regional supervisors. And so there he was, sitting in his tax booth, Levi, knowing that a bustling crowd was approaching. Experience had taught Levi just to keep his head down. He didn't want any of those snide comments or those horrible looks shot across his by. Suddenly the bustle had stopped right in front of him. He could feel people's eyes concentrating on him. He heard mutterings. He looked up cautiously, and there before him was a very intense-looking young man staring right at him. He knew immediately that this must be the Jesus that everyone had been speaking about. And a nervous knot began to form in his stomach, and he braced himself for a terrible telling off, for a scolding from this rabbi. But Jesus' first words to him were, Follow me. There were gasps from the crowd. There was a frozen stun as Levi sat there. Was Jesus speaking to him? What did he mean? And Jesus' expression grew more earnest, and he beckoned with his hand. He wanted Levi literally to follow him at that very moment. And a jumble of thoughts collided in Levi's mind at that time. Where was Jesus going that he wanted him to follow? How long would they be gone? 
but he also felt the exhilaration and joy like he'd never experienced before, for here was someone who wanted him. For so long he had assumed, for so long Levi had been told that God didn't want anything to do with him. He was just a tax collector, a sinner, shunned by society. But now it seemed that through Jesus, God actually had time for him. And despite the fact that abandoning his booth would no doubt cost him his job, Levi suddenly realized he would gladly trade financial security for following Jesus. So he laid down his quill, he set aside his books, disregarded his fortune, stood up, and he fell in behind Jesus. He had never felt freer in his life. Levi, this enemy of the state, the one who had betrayed his home, his family, his heritage, Levi the collaborator, Levi the enemy, one hated by the religious elite and obviously as a result by their logic, loathed by God, is invited by God's Son to follow him. He'd been expecting a telling off, whilst Jesus' words were such that they drew him near. This was such an unexpected invitation, but Levi's was such a remarkable and immediate reaction. Look at verse 28. He got up, left everything, followed Jesus. And 2,000 years later, Jesus has lost none of his seeking, saving power. Jesus stands over us today, not regarding our circumstances or our sinfulness or our past reputation, for he knows that many of us continue to go about our daily tasks. And even in lockdown or isolation, some of us feel heavy and weary and worn out and run down. Some of us are burdened by all that's going on in life right now. Some of us feeling extremely lonely. Others overwhelmed that they have far more to do around the home than they ever imagined. They're hardly getting a minute's peace. Children always looking for attention for the next thing. Others at home feeling emotional and stretched and strained. Whilst the regular routines haven't stopped for the physical work, for those of us who work around farms, and maybe we've hardly a time to stop and think. Our key workers in our congregations coming home exhausted, mentally, physically drained of life, wondering if they can get up and go another day. Or it could be all this talk of vulnerability. As each of us is confronted with our own mortality, this disease that seemed to be taking the lives of teenagers and 20-somethings as well as the 80 and 90-year-olds leads us to a place where we are scared. Because all of us know our sin. We try hard to hide how we feel, but deep inside there's a fear. And Jesus stands over all of us, and he doesn't stand over us today with a ticking off, but he says to us, follow me, fall in behind me. Because in following him, you step out and we place our feet in the feet marks that Jesus has already trod before us. And his feet have already taken him to the cross where he's dealt with sin and all those things we think cut us off from Jesus. He's dealt with it. That's where his feet have taken him. And his feet have already taken him to the grave, the place that many of us fear and scares us more than anything. And Jesus rose from it. And his feet have taken him heavenwards to that place of supreme authority. And as we follow Jesus in isolation and busyness, in quietness or our chaos, everywhere we place our feet, he has been there, he has led, and he has already loved. Can I ask you today, 
What do you need to leave behind in order to follow Jesus fully? What's your equivalent of Levi's tax booth? What's the thing that ties you up, that stops you moving on with Jesus? That thing that you just can't seem to leave behind. Jesus isn't standing in judgment of your job or your reputation or how you're coping this moment. He is saying, I am here. Won't you walk my way and come with me? The crowds that day were stunned that Jesus should bother with someone like Levi. I mean, Levi, has Jesus already lost his dignity? And maybe that's what you think about yourself today. Jesus is only interested in the upfront, the have-it-all-together, spiritual, always-at-church, people-have-got-life-sorted. No, friends, Jesus says, whoever you are, however you feel, come my way. And so we leave this unexpected invitation to then see in verses 29 and 30 the unbelievable guest list. The unbelievable guest list. For a start, look at verse 29. Levi wastes no time in inviting his Savior to meet with his peers. Having followed Jesus, we see a true conversion. This is how it plays out, which turns away from self and goes the way of the Savior. Levi makes this great feast in his own home, at his own expense, for the good of others. He wants to bless others so they can meet with Jesus too. This is the man for whom wealth was his reason for getting up in the morning. But now, throwing a lavish party, throwing every penny, no expense spared, for whoever would come, he poured out his absolute all so that others might have that opportunity to meet with Jesus. His conversion is seen in how determined he is to share his Savior. No expense spared. Nothing left in the cupboard. He throws his house wide open for a great banquet, verse 29, and a large crowd turns up. Levi threw a grand celebration to honor his master, who headed, who was top of this unbelievable guest list. He sent out invitations to anyone and everyone who would come, reminding us and challenging us about how we use our spaces, our homes, our food, our finances in service of the Savior. Is our house known as a place of retreat and welcome for anyone from anywhere? Are our lives lived in such a way that we would be the very first port of call, the first phone call that someone would make if someone was struggling or in need of some assistance despite their sin or however they feel they've let others die? Or are we too quick to put up the Christian barrier around us to keep out anyone who might cause us embarrassment or ruin our reputation or are we like Jesus, a friend to sinners? Are we more concerned about sharing the Savior or our own personal pride? And so many of his sin-stained colleagues who had little social life because they were shunned by society never got invited anywhere, now piled in to Levi's house. It was Levi's party. He was the host, not Jesus. And Luke's report suggests that Jesus was there eating and drinking with them. Without stooping to sin or losing his dignity, Jesus was there swapping stories, laughing, maybe even singing songs as anyone would do at a good party. There's no indication at all that Jesus simply stood in the corner of the room, nibbling on the Pringles, 
hoping not to be noticed or sipping his slur. No, Jesus lured himself to enjoy the company of tax collectors, sinners, and assorted ragamuffins from around the region. How shocking. To those who looked on in verse 30, Jesus actually seemed to be enjoying himself and looked like he was one of their friends. You see, the problem for the Pharisees who were looking on wasn't the party. It was the guest list. Surely Jesus would be wanting to socialize with them, not this rabble. These tax collectors were, were social outcasts. And worse than that, the Jews saw the Romans as the great enemy who had invaded their land, stripping them of power. For God and Israel was their cry. And so anyone who worked for Rome was not just an enemy of Israel, but a de facto enemy of God. And here they are, partying with Jesus. God in human flesh is sitting down and eating with enemies. This was scandalous. You see, friendship and fellowship is seen in the meals that are shared. Restaurants and coffee shops, when they were open, reverberated with laughter and stories and catch-ups. We feast as we celebrate a loved one's birthday or anniversary or a wedding day with a lovely meal. On these kind of days, the focus is on the meal and the sitting down together, the identifying powerfully with one another. Although one of the things that I am sure, like many of you, I struggle with is being invited to a wedding only to be seated at a table where you barely know anybody. As soon as you introduce yourself around the table as a minister, the conversation very quickly can dry up. The conversation might be polite but strained. There are times you feel like you just want to get lost in the process of sipping your soup. Because you see, those who sit with you signify friendship, relationship, family, or a bond that brings you together. And being thrown together randomly is not always straightforward and leaves us awkward and uncomfortable and vulnerable. And this was no less the case for the Jews who looked on as Jesus ate with sinners. But remember the very, very strict Jewish food laws. Some of you who know your Old Testament. The Israelites only eat what is kosher. Pork and shellfish and so on off the menu. Different utensils had to be used for dairy products or meat. Blood had to be properly drained from animals before it could be eaten and shared. If followed faithfully, these regulations meant you couldn't enter into close relationships in the meals that you shared. You couldn't just head out for lunch with anyone. Barriers were put in place. Jews would rarely eat with Gentiles in Jesus' day. Their homes, their mealtimes, their kitchen tables were kept pure from the pollution of anyone outside their little religious bubble, safe from anyone who might be a sinner. In other words, who you ate lunch with was a marker of your theology. You only ate with those whom you regarded as good. But Jesus comes eating and drinking with sinners, and it blows their minds. Jesus shares his food and his table with sinners. Here's a quick Bible quiz for you all at home. I wonder how you would complete the following New Testament sentence. The Son of Man came. How would you complete it? 
Think about it for a moment. The Son of Man came. What comes into your mind? What happens next? Well, Mark chapter 10, verse 45 tells us the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 tells us the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. These are two statements of purpose. This is the why Jesus came, serving, giving his life as a ransom, seeking and saving the lost. These are encouraging verses for us today. But the third example in the New Testament is mind-blowing. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. This tells us how Jesus came. The Son of Man was the Old Testament shorthand from the book of Daniel for, for the powerful one who stands before the throne of the Ancient of Days, the Almighty God, and receives power and authority over this world and the world that is to come. In other words, the Son of Man is God. And now the Son of Man, God in human flesh, has come. And how does he come? He Has he come to the sound of angels and the clouds of glory? No, he has come eating and drinking. So ordinary, so down to earth as we sometimes sing. Jesus reached out and he not only came down from heaven, but he sat down and the Holy One sits with sinners. Grace is seen around these tables where Jesus sits. Grace turns the world of religious people upside down. You see, a self-righteous people like to think of life a little bit like a ladder. Depending how good you are, you move up towards God. And as you look down, you look down below and you say things like, I don't drink like him. I don't smoke like her. I don't swear like them. I don't gamble like that lot. My family haven't been involved in any breakups or bust-ups like they have. And so we look down and we move ourselves a few rungs further up, always looking down, always comparing. And you see, your sense of well-being comes from where you think you are on that ladder. Nothing makes you feel better than looking down that ladder. Because even at your worst, you feel that you're a good bit better than that lot below you. And you see, how there are hundreds of us, even many of us watching this today, hanging on to our places on that ladder. But self-salvation just doesn't work. And some of us have got to realize that today. For it's not about how far up you've climbed or how much further you need to climb to holiness and perfection because sinlessness is something that none of us can master. But a lot depends on what you view as what will save you, your salvation. If you want to be admired by other real manly men, some of you men out there feel you're not blokey enough with a six-pack or slick hair or a sick car, you're condemned. Or if you want security and possessions and identity, what happens when you lose your job? Or if you've been furloughed or suddenly having to be a full-time stay-at-home mum? Or you miss the recognition of work, the admiration of fellow staff, the satisfaction of a good day's work, or even the opportunity to be upfront in your church activity and the organizations. And you feel you've lost your identity. You feel you've lost a reason for being and your standing before others. 
Well, Paul tells us in Galatians 2, verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ. And many of us who have been Christians for many years need to hear that again today, because many of us feel that our reputation, our identity is so bound up with what we do, as opposed to the work that Christ has done. The film Little Miss Sunshine is the story of a girl who by default gets through to the regional final of the Little Miss Sunshine beauty contest. Her wildly dysfunctional family heads off for the pageant. Now, Little Olive is a very awkward girl. She's got huge glasses. She is overweight for her age. And yet she's about to enter a beauty contest. Her dad is a failed motivational speaker who can't face up to his failures. Her uncle is a dark depressive her cousin refuses to speak, and her mum just tries to hold them all together. And they're thrown together in this road trip as they head to this beauty pageant in an equally dysfunctional Volkswagen van on which the doors fall off, the horn can't be turned off, and it always needs push started every time it stops. There's in fact a moment in the film where the family suddenly realize that little Olive is missing. They left her behind at a gas station and they have to go back. They have to pick her up off the street without stopping the van because they can't restart the van if it does stop. And the father's voice is crying out through the door. No one gets left behind. No one gets left behind on this trip. And at the film's climax, this dysfunctional family arrive at the beauty contest. It's the epitome of perfect, respectable, a manicured world where these little girls are like little dolls without blemish. But underneath, these parents are full of envy and rivalry and arrogance. And these two worlds collide. Dysfunction and false beauty. That's what's going on at Levi's party. Two worlds collide. These sinners and tax collectors who are dysfunctional sinners... And in the Pharisees, there's a fake beauty. Oh, how they look so perfect on the outside. They keep all the laws. They wear all the right clothes. They go to the right meetings. But it's a fake beauty because underneath, there's the world of pride and ladder climbing and backslapping and comparison and self-justification, which is the opposite, the absolute opposite of God's message. English author Tim Chester concludes, when Jesus eats with Levi, the message is clear. Jesus has come for losers, people on the margins, people who have made a mess of their lives, people who are ordinary. Jesus has come for you, for you. The only people left out are those who think they don't need God. The self-righteous and self-important and sadly, that includes many, many people. And right at the end of this story, Jesus moves from the meal table to the doctor's surgery in verse 31. Isn't it fascinating how at Christmas time, our accident and emergency departments were at breaking point? There was a crisis of mammoth proportions in the NHS as emergency rooms couldn't cope with the high demand. But last week, the Stormont Executive Health Minister, Robin Swan, had to appeal to people who were sick to go to hospital, to come for treatment. 
Why are people with heart complaints or stroke-like symptoms or those who have been passing blood or in severe pain choosing not to go to hospital because they're afraid of mixing with those with the COVID-19 illness? And as a result, they're risking their own lives by not getting the medical treatment that they desperately need. Jesus says exactly the same. Friends, look at your own hearts. Monitor your own sin sickness. Don't worry about others and what they do or don't do. What about you? The sick need a doctor. The sinner needs a savior. And Jesus has come down and Jesus sits with sinners. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And so Jesus, our Savior, offers us true salvation. We're welcome to God's feast. He offers us a seat around his table. And you know what? When we don't measure up, we're not condemned. That's what the cross is all about. Instead of condemning us, our God is condemned in our place. Jesus identifies himself not just with sinners, but he becomes sin at the cross. Jesus doesn't just sit down with us. He hangs on a cross for us. Jesus doesn't just invite us to the feast. Jesus is the feast. This is my body broken for you. This is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's examine ourselves as Paul urges us to do in 1 Corinthians Let's see our sin for what it is. Let us see our sin for what it cost Christ. It cost him everything. And today, let us repent of it. This fatal disease that messes with our minds, that poisons our priorities, makes us dizzy without distractions, and all that this world offers makes us delusional that we are better and further up that ladder than others this is a sickness that would ultimately lead us to condemnation that we need treatment for. And so we need to repent and come to Jesus, the healer, the host who invites us to his table. Like the dad in the Little Miss Sunshine film, do you hear the invitation of Jesus to us all today? The scandalous invitation to losers, losers like you and like me. No one gets left behind. Jump on board. You're all welcome to this great party. The weakest, the worst, the vilest, the lowest, the highest, the poor. No matter how you feel, join the feast. Jesus says, come, follow me.